you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Austell's theology class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about the theological concepts in a sci-fi classic, The Matrix. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Bonus Points. Today we're bringing you another episode where we look at a piece of pop culture to see what connections we can find with the faith. We've been doing this sort of thing since the earliest days of the show. In fact, way back in episode 2, we looked at the theology of Jurassic Park. Since then, we've talked about Encanto, and we've done several episodes on different connections with the Star Wars universe. To find out more about those episodes and more, you can check out the episode guide on bonuspointspodcast.com. There you can also submit your ideas for future episodes or questions for our next edition of Question and Astle. Speaking of submitting ideas for episodes, today's topic was suggested by listener Joe H., and it was one of the first episode suggestions I received. I've been hesitant to actually make this episode because there's just so much going on here. As we'll see, The Matrix has some very deep and very intentional Christian imagery that gives us a lot to talk about. So today's episode has been a long time in the making, and I think it's going to be a good one. Thank you again to listener Joe H. for the suggestion. To keep our scope reasonable, we're only going to be talking about the original Matrix movie. I know that there have been several sequels and video games and other media that contribute to the canon of how the Matrix works, but for simplicity, we are only going to be talking about the original 1999 movie. Before we dive in further... It's worth making a point about why there's value in looking for connections between movies and our faith, and perhaps offer a word of warning as well. Many movies are not explicitly Christian, and yet contain Christian messages and themes. They offer allegories or raise important moral questions, or otherwise give us something substantial that we can connect to the faith. Sometimes these are intentional, but often I think they just happen as a result of the historical context in which these movies are made. As much as as it has tried to forget in recent years, Western civilization really was founded by the church. And so Western art, even if it's not of a religious nature, is going to have to make a real effort not to include Christian ideas. It's just so ingrained in our civilization, and I do think that's a good thing, by the way. I like Bishop Barron's expression. He says that many of the movies and shows that we watch contain seeds of truth. They may not be dogmatic, and they will certainly get some things wrong, but they can prime the pump for evangelization. They can provide a sort of common language with the person we're sharing the gospel with, and they can provoke good conversations. So the value here is that if we can make these connections between the pop culture that we are consuming, and our faith, we can use that. We can use that to plant seeds and to start conversations. The warning, though, is we don't want to assume that just because a movie has Christian themes that it's going to get everything right or present a totally accurate portrait of the faith. But anyway, I don't want to go on for too long about that because I do want to do a future episode on this idea of looking at pop culture in general. But I thought I'd mention it here because this movie has some very strong Christian themes, 
even if it's not going to be a substitute for a catechism. As we always do on movie-related episodes, we should start with a synopsis of the movie for those listeners who haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently. Needless to say, there are spoilers ahead. So, the movie centers on a software engineer named Thomas Anderson, played by Keanu Reeves. In addition to his legitimate computer work, he's also a hacker who goes by the name Neo. Neo is introduced to a famous hacker named Trinity, who warns him that he is in danger because he is seeking the truth. Shortly after that, he's contacted by another famous hacker named Morpheus, who the government has labeled as a cyber-terrorist. Morpheus warns him that they are coming for him, just as men in dark suits show up in Neo's office. He's arrested by the men, led by a mysterious Agent Smith. Agent Smith tells Neo that they've been trying to capture Morpheus for some time, and they're willing to grant Neo amnesty for his hacking-related crimes in exchange for his assistance. They implant a listening device in him and let him go. The next day, Neo meets with Trinity, who removes the listening device and takes him to Morpheus. This is where Morpheus gives Neo the big reveal. Reality as he knows it is not real, but is actually an advanced computer simulation called the Matrix. The backstory is that early in the 21st century, humans developed sentient AI. At some point shortly thereafter, the humans and the artificial intelligence went to war, because of course they did. In a desperate attempt to prevent the AI from using their solar panels, the humans blocked out the sun. Undeterred, the AI simply enslaved the humans and turned them into batteries. Yes, batteries. The AI basically plugs every human into a giant power grid and saps their energy. The complex computer simulated world is there to keep humanity occupied so that they remain enslaved and easy to control. Even though Neo thinks he's been living in the year 1999 as a software engineer, he's actually been living in the year 2199, floating in a vat of goop with a cord plugged into his neck. At this point, Neo is given a choice. He can take a blue pill that will make him forget what he has learned. He will go back to his simulated existence, none the wiser. Or, he can take the red pill and be freed from the Matrix. This is Morpheus's mission. He brings people out of the Matrix while awaiting the prophesied One, who will free all of humanity. Spoiler alert, Neo's the One. I mean, his name is just One Rearranged, for crying out loud. Anyway, Neo takes the red pill and awakes in the real world. Real world Morpheus helps him get adjusted and then takes him aboard his ship, the Nebuchadnezzar, where he meets an assortment of other freed humans. He learns of the existence of Zion, an underground city that houses the last community of free humans. As Neo trains, he learns more about the mysterious agents who he encountered before. They are sentient programs who are hunting down the resistance, the people in the Matrix that know it's a simulation. Speaking of Agent Smith, we see him having a cyber steak dinner with Cypher, one of the crew members from Morpheus' ship. Cypher strikes a deal with Agent Smith. In exchange for betraying Neo, he will be reinserted into the Matrix as a famous actor. Even though he knows it's a simulation and that the steak that he's eating isn't even real, he says that he prefers this because, quote, ignorance is bliss. We see this whole showdown between the Resistance and the Agents with 
lots of action sequences and bullet dodging and all the cool special effects that dazzled audiences in 1999. At the end of it, Neo is killed but brought back to life by the love of Trinity. The resurrected Neo effortlessly defeats the agents and brings the Matrix programming to a crashing halt. Okay, so even just from that synopsis, you probably saw some Christian imagery and archetypes just popping right out at you. Not just with the characters or plot points, but even the names of things. Zion, Nebuchadnezzar, Trinity. Like I said at the start of the show, I think that a lot of the time, these Christian influences are unintentional. In this case, though, the connections are strong enough that it certainly seems more likely that the creators of the movie did this on purpose. And in fact, they confirmed as much in some of the interviews that they've done. Around the time the first movie came out, for example, they gave an interview on the Warner Brothers website, and one of the questions was, are all the religious symbolism and doctrine throughout this movie intentional or not? To which they responded simply, most of it is intentional. Now, I think there would still be value in doing this episode, even if it were not intentional, but knowing that the creators of the movie did this on purpose is going to affect the way we look at it. I'd like to propose a series of connections, and I've roughly put them in order based on how deep we can go with this. We'll start with some surface-level observations and allegorical connections, and then gradually identify some other ideas that we can draw out from those. Now, when I say the allegorical level, what I mean is that different characters and events in the story represent or symbolize Christian figures and events. The obvious one, of course, is that Neo is presented as a messianic figure. He is prophesied as the one who would lead a resistance to free humanity from slavery and falsehood and lead them into truth. This role puts him at odds with the dominant powers who see him as a threat to the established order. He sacrifices his life to save somebody and dies, but is raised from the dead to defeat the agents, which represent Satan and his demons. So, Neo, very clearly the Christ figure here. In fact, if I recall correctly, at various points in the movie, other characters even say things to him like, you're my personal savior, you're my personal Jesus Christ. So, this one, very obvious, very clear, very intentional. So, if Neo is the Messiah here, Morpheus is like his John the Baptist. Um... Like John, Morpheus' role is to await the Savior and then proclaim him when he comes. And that's what Morpheus does, right? He's, he's waiting for the appearance of the One. He's preparing people for the appearance of the One. And then when the One finally does appear, he becomes his prophet, his herald. He's the one who really tries to bring the One to prominence, just like John the Baptist. Neo finds a collection of allies similar to the Apostles, and like the Apostles, one of them betrays him. Cypher here is a Judas figure who betrays Neo in exchange for a virtual steak dinner, just like Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In both cases, we have not just a betrayal, but a betrayal in exchange for a reward that is ultimately not that great. I mean, 30 pieces of silver translates to something like a few hundred bucks today. Definitely not life-changing, and the stake isn't even a real stake. We also hear about this free human city called Zion. Aside from the biblical name, 
even this concept is like the church. Zion is like the church in the sense that it is a community of those who have been freed from slavery. In the Matrix, this means physical slavery to the AI, but for us, we think of sin as a type of slavery. St. Paul says that anyone who is in sin is a slave to sin. Baptism frees us from slavery to that sin. And speaking of sin, we can even make a connection between the human's act of blocking out the sun and original sin. Because of original sin, we are born without grace. From the moment of our conception, we are cut off from the source of life. Just as in the Matrix, humans are born into a world without the sun, which is our source of natural life. So to recap one possible interpretation, and there may be some different ways to line this up, but the way we've talked about it, Neo is a messianic figure who is heralded by his own John the Baptist, Morpheus. He's betrayed by Cypher, his Judas, and then dies and is raised. We also have Zion representing the church, the blocking of the sun analogous to original sin, and Agent Smith and the other agents like Satan and his demons. We can also draw some connections between Christianity itself and breaking free from the matrix. In fact, as I was doing research for this episode, I found many bloggers who made this exact connection. They compared Christianity to taking the red pill in the sense that it makes you realize that there's more going on in the universe than we realize, and it brings you into a more true way of existence. Now, I know that some corners of the internet have co-opted the term red pill and use it to refer to what I would consider to be a disordered approach to dating. In any case, this is not how we're using the term here. But anyway, like I was saying, this is a very popular way of identifying Christian imagery in the Matrix. The gospel frees us from our illusions and puts us in touch with a deeper reality. Not only that, but we can even draw a parallel between the efforts of the resistance and evangelization. In the movie, the members of the resistance choose to re-enter the Matrix in order to try to lead others to also take the red pill and be freed. They go back in knowing fully that it's an illusion, and to some extent, they, they kind of have to work within the Matrix's rules. This is similar to the idea that, as Christians, we are in the world, but not of the world. Now, if we go another step deeper, we can look at some of the underlying philosophical concepts that sort of undergird the Matrix's vision of reality. First, I want to compare the Matrix to the ancient philosophy slash heresy of Gnosticism, because this movie is often accused of being Gnostic. But then I want to consider an important difference that, in my mind, kind of absolves the Matrix of these accusations. But let's begin with Gnosticism. This term comes up in several of my classes, so if you're one of my students, it's not unlikely that you've heard this before. Gnosticism is not a single group, but it's more like a category of closely related heresies. Many varieties of Gnosticism borrowed ideas from the Greek mystery cults and then blended them with Christianity. The term Gnosticism comes from gnosis, which means knowledge. One of the beliefs that unites the different forms of Gnosticism is the idea that Jesus entrusted special, hidden knowledge only to a select group of his followers. The way to be saved is to rise through the ranks, become one of these elect, and gain this hidden knowledge. In short, it's salvation through knowledge. 
If you're familiar with the term Gnostic Gospels, you may be wondering if there's a connection. There is. For those who aren't familiar, the Gnostic Gospels are a collection of ancient texts that are falsely attributed to various apostles, Mary Magdalene, or even Jesus himself. Occasionally, there's a History Channel documentary about them, and people gasp and wonder if these are new books of the Bible. These documentaries always seem to come out around Christmas and Easter. Well, sorry to disappoint, but they're not new books of the Bible, uh, and they're not new either. The church, the early church was aware of these texts, we knew about them, we studied them, and we rejected them as hoaxes. So while they claimed to be written by the apostles or other closely related figures, they were actually written much later by various Gnostic sects to try to give their philosophy some credibility. The other major belief that the various forms of Gnosticism shared was the idea that matter is evil and that true liberation consists of being freed from the physical world to become a pure spirit. This is why one form of Gnosticism, a heresy known as Docetism, rejected the Incarnation. Instead, they claimed that Jesus only appeared human, but didn't have a real body. This is why they're called Docetists, from the Greek dokine or to show. They were just too uncomfortable with the idea of a god that took on a physical form, because in their mind, the physical world was evil. By the way, if you're in my sophomore Who is Jesus class, we just talked about Docetism last week. The reason that the Matrix often gets accused of Gnosticism is that, like Gnosticism, the Matrix claims that the world is only an illusion from which we must be freed, and that accessing hidden knowledge is a vital step toward that liberation. Here's one key difference, though. And in my mind, this difference is enough to keep the matrix and Gnosticism in two separate categories. In Gnosticism, the real world is less physical than the illusory world that we are presented with, and it's precisely the opposite in the matrix. In fact, the movie goes out of its way to show just how gritty and physical the real world is. When Neo first emerges from his pod, he's naked and slimy and just gross. There's also that scene where Neo's eating in the real world. He's eating a weird nutrition goop that keeps you alive, but it's definitely not appetizing. We also see Cypher eating a virtual steak in the Matrix. He's fully aware of the fact that he's not actually eating a steak, and that it's just the Matrix generating the experience of eating a steak, but he doesn't care. So I'd say that's the key important difference here is, while they both present this idea that the world as it seems is an illusion that we need to be freed from. In the Matrix, the way to freedom is a more physical world. That The illusion is that the world isn't physical, and, then, and we have to realize that it is. With Gnostics, it's the other way around. They would say that the physical world is to be rejected, and the higher plane of existence is pure spirit. So while there are some similarities between Gnosticism and the Matrix, I'm not I'm not as willing to utterly reject the movie on those grounds. I think there is still enough of a difference between them. This brings us to one more important question that the Matrix raises, and that's about our relationship with technology as individuals and as a society. The scene with Cypher and the stake reminds me of an important thought experiment in philosophy known as the experience machine. It was first proposed in 1974 by Robert Nozick, and it goes like this. 
This is a quote from his 1989 book, The Examined Life. I quote, Imagine a machine that could give you any experience or a sequence of experiences you might desire. When connected to this experience machine, you can have the experience of writing a great poem or bringing about world peace or loving someone and being loved in return. You can experience the felt pleasures of these things and how they feel from the inside. Would you choose to do this for the rest of your life? If not, why not? Generally speaking, most people answer no. Even if there's a stipulation that they won't know it's a simulation, most people still refuse to enter the machine. The assumption is that people will prefer reality to illusion, even if that illusion is a pleasurable one. In an interesting twist, a philosopher named Philippe de Brigard proposed a new thought experiment that he called the inverted experience machine. In this scenario, you find out that you have already plugged into an experience machine, and that everything you've considered to be your real life is an illusion. You're then given the choice to either remain in the simulation or to unplug and return to your real life. In other words, Debregard puts his subjects in Neo's shoes and offers them a blue pill and a red pill. And I think um, in his scenario, he says that in your real life, you're a billionaire from Monaco. So it's not even like people are worried about unplugging because they're not sure what they'll find. He says, no, you got it. You got a pretty good real life. Will you unplug or stay in the simulation? Here's the thing, though. In this inverted experience machine, most people responded that they would remain plugged in, even with the knowledge that it was an illusion. And so Debregard concludes that the reason that people refused to plug into the experience machine in the original thought experiment was not that they preferred reality to illusion, but just that they preferred what was familiar to what was different. Hence the decision not to unplug in the inverted thought experiment, that people don't care as much about reality versus illusion, they're just afraid of change. And at first that seems kind of a stretch, right? Like, why wouldn't we prefer reality to illusion? But more and more, this seems to be the conclusion that other people are drawing. In 1999, the creators of The Matrix could not have ever dreamed of the internet as it exists today. You know, the internet existed, but if you remember being online in 1999, it was a very different experience than what we have today. They couldn't have foreseen social media and all of the issues that go with it. But when we look at the trends, and especially the data emerging from the studies of the effects of social media, we can't take it for granted that people would prefer reality to illusion. How often do we find ourselves choosing to live in these virtual spaces instead of reality? And we do that knowing that the metaverse is not real. We know that, at least in our minds, that the things we see on the internet are not real. The pictures are staged, the people are photoshopped. It's not just virtual, it's an illusion. And yet we choose this illusion over reality And we even allow these illusions to influence our expectations of reality. There are many, many, many studies that point to the negative effects of social media on self-esteem and self-image. Part of that comes from the fact that we compare ourselves to the people we see, and we find ourselves lacking. The problem is the people we see online aren't real. 
They've been photoshopped to unrealistic proportions, and then we try to make ourselves live up to those unrealistic proportions. Now, please don't misunderstand. I love technology. I use technology. I'm literally using technology right now. I don't want to blame technology or even social media for our problems. But hopefully the matrix reminds us that we need to be intentional about the way we use technology and especially the way we use the internet. The internet has many good things and it can be an incredible tool, but it can never be a substitute for reality. God was not content to meet us virtually, but substantially. He incarnated as one of us. He took on a real physical body. All right, so we covered a lot of different ground in this episode, but to be fair, there's a lot of meaning packed into a movie like The Matrix. So let's review. We talked about how various elements from the movie can be Christian allegories. We talked about the Messiah figure Neo, who was heralded by his own John the Baptist, Morpheus. We drew comparisons between Zion and the church, between Agent Smith and the devil, between Cypher and Judas. We compared the entire Christian experience to taking the red pill and choosing to go back into the matrix to lead others to truth. We debated whether the movie's ideas of the universe were secretly Gnostic, and considered how the matrix raises questions about the relationship between our experiences, technology, and reality. That said, there's so much more that we could have talked about if we had time. If you head to bonuspointspodcast.com, you can find lots of additional resources if you want to go deeper with today's topic or any topic, but especially today's topic. I have a lot of resources to throw your way this time around. So, what resources can I offer you? Well, I'll have a link to the Internet Movie Database page for The Matrix which includes a very detailed synopsis if you want to refresh your memory of the plot. I'm including a transcript of an interview that the creators of The Matrix gave in 1999. This is where they stated that the religious themes were intentional. I'm going to have links to a few different articles and blog posts about Christian themes in The Matrix. These articles were a big help in drawing out some of these connections. You'll find the Catholic Encyclopedia's article on Gnosticism, as well as the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy's article on the experience machine and the abstract for Philippe de Brigard's paper on the inverted experience machine. I'm linking to a lecture given by philosopher Ed Fazer about whether he thinks that artificial intelligence can ever be truly sentient. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. And finally, if you've been starting to wonder whether you might already be living in the Matrix, you can check out the Catholic Answers article about how we know that we can trust that our senses are experiencing reality and that we're not living in a simulation. Anyway, that's going to do it for today's episode of Bonus Points. As always, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening and share this episode with a friend. I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining us once again as we put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.